Hi guys, uh, I just wanted to let you know before we start this show that one of our number is doing a comedy show, and that is one, it. Me, Anna? It's not you, James. Oh. You'd know about that, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah. No, it's me. It's not Dan. What? It's not you. Is no. it you, Anna? It's not me. Oh, either. then I'm not interested. I have no interest. Oh either. yeah, that's going to put people off. Now they've realised it's not me. It is Andrew Hunter Murray who keeps on having to add new shows to his bloody comedy show because people keep on filling them out and. All right, start again. Just read the card I've given you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we went to watch it the other week, didn't we? Yeah, it's and it hilarious. It's really funny. It's so funny. It's really, really good. Yeah. Yeah, really. it's great. <laughs> it's really funny. It's full of characters. You get to see Andy being the stupidest version of himself. <laughs> doing. He's, he's a, a rhyming librarian lady at a book club. He's a samba man. It's amazing. Spoilers. So many spoilers. Uh, no, it's, it's excellent. It's absurd and insane and hilarious. You should go and see it. It's on the 27th and the 28th of March at the Soho Theatre. It's at 7.45. Go and see it now. Well, don't go and see it now. No. Go and see it when it's on. <laughs> yeah. Also, before we begin, you'll notice that James is not here this week. Sitting in his place is Erica McAllister. Erica McAllister is a friend of ours. She works at the Natural History Museum, and she is their curator of flies, Diptera. And uh, she's got a new book out. It's called The Secret Life of Flies. She took three years to write this book. It's everything that she knows about flies. And she knows a lot about flies. She knows so much stuff about flies. And also, she has no time for people who don't like flies. Which which is why I wasn't allowed on the podcast. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so the book's going to be out April 3rd. It was really exciting to have her on the show. She was really awesome. And she told us that she was going to make sure she always brought it back to flies. And she did, no matter what we were talking about. Okay, on with the show. Welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber, and I'm sitting here with Anna Chazinski, Andrew Hunter-Murray, and the Natural History Museum's curator of Diptera, that means flies, it's Erica McAllister, and once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days, and in no particular order, here we go. Starting with you... Erica. My fact is that the vinegar fly sperm is so long that if humans had the same sperm to body ratio as the fly, for example then, Dan's sperm would be the size of a sperm whale. Whoa. <laughs> Do you feel proud? That's... <laughs> <laughs> so when you say size, is that the, the length as long as a blue whale? As a, as a, a sperm, sperm whale. As a sperm whale. If it was blue whale, that would be quite extraordinary, but it's a sperm whale. So It's about 120 feet, I read. Roughly? Uh, Is that meters, right or not? Meters, meters. Oh. science. Can you not oh. do a meters? No, no, it's new money. No, it? 33 yeah. meters. 33 meters? Yeah. <laughs> a third of a, of a hundred meter sprinting thing. So three of Dan's sperm will be able to stretch the length of Usain Bolt's run. Yes. Yeah. That's quite a nice graphic. I hadn't <laughs> quite done that thought process, but thank you. Why do they need sperm that long? Um, they don't have a lot of sperm. Oh, okay. And they don't go through the teenage years, so they don't waste it. And what they do is that because it, females are very, very promiscuous. Okay. And this is all nature, that females are designed to be promiscuous. Um, we're only doing it for our offspring. It's not for fun. That's what I tell people. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so what, we, we originally thought that if there was lots of sperm competition, you make loads of it and it was great. And actually what these do is their sperm is so large, the actual sperm pushes the other sperm out of the way. 
Whoa. I know. Pushes them out of the way of, like, in the in, opening, yeah. in the genital opening, it pushes well, the sperm the out of the way. Yep. Oh. They've got quite exciting penises. Have they? What are their penises well, yeah, like? Yeah, what are their penises like? <laughs> Hello. <laughs> uh, it depends on species. Some of them have got, like, little combs. Some of them have, like, got look like little whips. They've got little tickling organs. They've got all sorts of things. Wow. So, so it's like a whole Ann Summers shop, but just inside a penis. <laughs> wow. Another thing I read is that this particular fly, vinegar fly, yeah. has testes which are a tenth of its body weight. They're enormous because they have to produce this. So they're not oh. the biggest in comparison to body size in Animal Kingdom. The sagebush cricket gets that at 14%. Okay. And you can look it up. You know, we study this. But they do need, because when they want to produce this sperm, and it is mm. one at a time that basically it's pumped out, not, not like the thousands that Dan yeah. wastes. Yeah. Mm. So, so Dan's, Dan's testicles here, yeah. Dan, I've estimated your weight. I yeah. think they'd be uh, well over a stone, maybe seven and a half kilos. So as you're, as you're, as you're lining up next to Usain Bolt... Yeah. Um, <laughs> Bouncing along on them like space hoppers. <laughs> <laughs> wow I've yeah. also got a real image of your sperm that I want someone to draw with just very thick rimmed glasses and a weird if you're listening to this do not quiz. draw that and send it to at Schreiberland <laughs> don't do it and th- this is the other thing so supposedly the, the sperm are they're like balls of twine yeah no they're really really thin so it looks like somebody has just given a cat a load of wool Right. And then somebody's come in and quickly had to tidy it up and shoved it all back together. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, like, uh. it's, all, it's always the same when the cleaning lady comes around, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> um, the, guy, um, the guy who I think first found out about the vinegar fly and their extremely long sperm, yep. Scott Pitnick, he has a tattoo of a sperm cell on his arm to sort of commemorate this discovery. That's very and cool. Th- he's put up photos of it online, and it is all over his arm. Well, it'd have to be. It, it, well, it is the, it's the length of his arm. It's, uh, mm. it's a huge tattoo. Although he should have made it the length of, you know, as we've said, proportionally. Well, the length of the, the, yeah, the sperm whale. Well. 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 Yeah, so he should have made it running all up and down his body. Yeah, he needs 30 <laughs> metres of it. Yeah. <laughs> I guess he should. Um, is it true that the way, as someone who... Um, looks for new species of flies as, as you do at the Natural History Museum is it true that you identify them through their genitals more than anything else? Well not through their genitals because <laughs> that would be odd but yeah um, species descriptions is basically it's always done on male genitalia female genitalia is really similar uh-huh. so the whole thing about it being a lock and key doesn't quite make sense but um, the idea now I have got this great idea that we're very into 3D printing and micro CT scanning we can actually do 3D genitalia get glasses, walk through. We could have, like, theme parks of fly genitalia. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure the NHM would totally go for a new gallery of, like, walk-through genitalia. Is this the thing that you've been pitching at every weekly meeting (laughs) for the last... (laughs) Any more business before we end? Could you call it through the pee hole? Ah! Isn't there, so I was reading about apparently they think the reason it has one big sperm that it leaves in a packet on top of the woman's abdomen and then she puts it into her genitals. The reason it's so big is so that it blocks it up like a plug. Do other flies do that? No, I mean, basically every animal has a plug. Humans have plugs. Ours is just a little bit more fluid. Okay. Uh, So the female seminal fluid is the plug trying to kill all the sperm. But also the European plugs are slightly different to the British ones. (laughs) And you need an adapter sometimes. (laughs) 
And so, yeah, so flies go out of their way to try and make these plugs. And a lot of flies actually use themselves. So they do practice sexual suicide. The male, when he's in cop with the female <laughs> yeah. and he's pumped his sperm up, yeah. a lot of them will sacrifice themselves, will let the females eat them. And then, so she's so busy doing that, it's a longer sperm transferal. So he's got a greater chance. Oh, wow. So he uses him. So there's a type wow. of biting midge. So basically, when she's in cop and she's facing him, she soars through his eyeballs, releases a digestive enzyme, his insides dissolve, she sucks them up, his body breaks off, snaps, leaves the penis in her, she just whips it out afterwards. Great. Brilliant. Whoa. You know when we, our parents as humans, talk about the sacrifices they've made? Yeah, they know <laughs> nothing. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> My body dissolved by your mother. Well, the bush crickets, with your, your massive mm. sperm, she will eat his wings. How come? Because he gives her something like mid-cop to nibble on to keep her there. Because wow. females basically only care about food. And then okay. does he have to walk home afterwards? No, well, he, he can't, can't fly he away. He can't do anything. Can't basically, do anything. that's it for him because no other female is going to be interested. No point in even doing the wingless walk of shame. It's why, it's why yeah. I go on any date with a packet of Pringles in either hand. It's so, it's <laughs> so, so women mi- don't eat your it's arms. It's so mid-date. I can provide the Pringles yeah. to them and they'll stay on the date with me for longer. Yeah, because you've got to keep the female interested. <laughs> There's a whole group true. of flies that the females don't even hunt. And so the males would bring them gifts. So the females would feed, they would have sex, it was all great. But the females finished before the males, so the females would just disappear. And the males are like, but we haven't finished. And so the males learned to wrap up their gifts. So it was like taking a box of chocolates. So she'd take so much time opening the fly up that he would have lots of sex. But it went the opposite way, because then she, <laughs> she spent so much time, he was like, well, I finished. So another group basically stole back this half-eaten box of chocolates and rewrapped it to give to another fly. What are they wrapping it in? Oh, Ribbon. saliva. Nice. Yeah. It's my favourite kind of <laughs> wrapping paper. Um, so some other questions I have about flies while you're here. So they flap their wings super fast, right? Yeah. Like 300 times a second, which I find insane. But I was reading that some of them have, someone called it a gearbox mechanism, where you have, do they have grooves or something? And they can kind of change gear to fl- make themselves go faster or slower. But they have... Um, they do have that, but flies probably are the most efficient and most amazing flies on the planet. But their vision is what's really important here because they see so much faster. So we are always oh, half a second behind real time. What? It takes yeah, us that long that. to process what goes on. So actually, we're never in the present moment. Okay. We're always in the past. It's but nuts. flies are millisecond, milli, mini, mini, like nano. So hence why they do everything so much faster. Cause so, so if I... And obviously I'm advocating do not swat them. Mm-hmm. But if we went to swat them, they would just see that as really slow motion and at the last minute they could just walk out the way. So if you do want to catch a fly, do it really slowly because then actually it appears like a solid object. Okay. Mm, like Neo at the end of the first Matrix Very film. much like Neo. <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, that's they have described that. Is that ah. so? Yeah. The, well, bullet time. Bullet time, yeah, Bullet time is what they call it in the Matrix when yeah. everything goes slow and bushy. Yeah, I should and have watched... Spider-Man can do that as well, as you see in that scene in Spider-Man, and spiders catch flies. <laughs> ah, but there's flies that eat spiders. <gasps> no. no. No, 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 it is. And they're so cool. There's three species in the UK, and they're called Acroceris hunchback flies, and they look gorgeous. And the female, she lays loads of eggs, but she doesn't lay them. She's basically got a machine gun as an ovipositor, and so she just rapidly fires out hundreds of these eggs. It's like around the garden and she wants them to land on vegetation that's slightly raised off the the ground and then the larvae have got like a sucker on the end of them and they kind of like stand up in the air like they just don't care waving around and then they look down and when a spider runs along 
they kind of hurl themselves at the spider and then they run to the spider. By the way, they've got no legs, so you mm-hmm. can, yeah. like inchworm crawling to the spider, up the leg into the abdomen. Oh, I know. Wow. But what's really cool, if the spider is immature and spiders can live to up to five years, they would do a little bit of munching and then basically go to sleep and wake up when the spider is mature and they can eat the right organs. Really? Yeah. So they, they're inside the, they have a nap inside the spider? For two years, three years. But it's not just spiders. So I read that there was, uh, there's a name here that I can't properly pronounce, but Lucilla buffonivora. Have you heard of that? Buffy for short? Yeah, they call it. Is Lucilia. It? Yeah, and so yeah. they have a similar uh, larvae thing where they go into a frog's head and then they eat the frog's head from the inside. And it is amazing. If you see the frog's head, have you seen... Yeah, the... I saw the photos. Crazy. Yeah, okay, go and have a look at the images because it's like completely deformed, like collapsed. It's like... Oh. Not sure we should be advocating this sort of behaviour. Well, your garden, honestly, if you really knew what was going on in it, it's just like... <laughs> it is, it's, it's, it's disgusting. <laughs> yeah, and everyone gives an about cute nature and I'm like Mm-mm-mm. everything is eating everything ripping limbs off and eating their insides <laughs> out <It's> just... <laughs> okay it is time for fact number two and that is my fact my fact this week is that whenever he got really angry Winston Churchill would throw his teeth across the room <laughs> yeah whenever well, not every single time, <laughs> but uh, when he got really angry, okay. apparently that's when you knew the teeth were coming out. Uh, so, <laughs> so Winston Churchill had uh, false teeth, dentures, and he had three sets of them. He had a dentist who made them for him called Derek Cudlip, and Derek Cudlip uh, specifically made these teeth. And so he used to get called in to the war rooms whenever Churchill flung his teeth across the room because they would break. So he would arrive with a new set of teeth to give him to pop back in. And then he would take the old pair and he would go off and he would fix them while he was gone. So he used to break them a lot, Churchill, when he got angry. Some of it was by throwing it against the wall. Uh, The other times was when he was biting too hard through stress and anger of what was going on. Um, And it was so important, these teeth to him, because as far as Churchill was concerned, part of the major push of winning the war was his voice, was him going on the radio and saying all these inspiring things. So when the call-up came for the dentist to go to war, he tore up the paper and said, it is more important for the war effort that this man is here looking after my teeth than it is for him to be fighting on the front lines. Wow. It was yeah. his technician, wasn't it? Cudlip was the technician who made it, and then yes, his dentist sorry. was Sir Wilfred Fish. Both excellent <laughs> names. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, as you say, his, he thought his speech was very important and he had a slight speech impediment, so he had kind of a lisp and he thought that was a vital part of how he was going to rally the troops. And so he made them make specially designed dentures that were slightly soft so that he could actually preserve his lisp so that he could make invigorating lispy speeches that yeah, he did. Amazing. Yeah. And um, you can... So the reason I know about this is because I read an article where a few years ago his teeth were auctioned off. So someone actually bought his teeth and it was sold, I believe, by the family of Mr. Cudlip. And, uh, yeah. I can't take that name seriously. <laughs> I'm sorry. But the, the really cool thing, the guy who bought them, he was a collector of Churchill memorabilia. And he already owned the microphone that Churchill had made a lot of these speeches into. And then he had the teeth that went with the microphone. So he said, in a sense, he had reunited them. I mean, all he was missing was actually Winston Churchill. Yeah. The Guardian headline about the auctioning of the teeth, I just have to read that. It was, we shall bite them on the beaches. Uh, Pretty good. Very good, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I actually looked up, as far as I could, a list of things that had been auctioned of Churchill's. Mm. Um, So there were quite a few things. His funeral plans were auctioned. Um, They went for £472. A violin made from one of his cigar boxes uh, was also auctioned off. 
and a Calgary Stetson cowboy hat that was auctioned off as well. I read the thing that was auctioned off. It came with a DVD which showed a clip of him putting on the hat. (laughs) (laughs) Presumably. (laughs) Which is kind of sensible because you want authentication. One Um, thing that uh, of Churchill's that went up for auction was a vial of his blood and it was withdrawn from auction after the very understandable objections of his family members who said, I don't, we don't need a file of Winston Churchill's blood going out for sale. But it was only put on auction at £300, which I think if you're going to do the really gruesome thing of putting a file of somebody's blood up, at least put it up for 50 grand. So we were looking into this because um, obviously you go around the world and you go into all the nice big cathedrals and there's an artefact. And it's like, OK, I have a finger of Jesus Christ. And we're like... Brilliant. And um, I've now seen God knows how many vials of blood of Jesus Christ. Really? Yeah. And so the scientist to me is like, oh, we should just sequence this. Yeah. You know, we can do it now. We've got the technology. And But like with all the bones and all the artifacts, apparently you can make like four, five Jesus Christ. Mm. But so um, the, the Natural History Museum gets sent? No, we haven't got sent those. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't get sent that sort of thing. Could you make your own Jesus Christ well, if this you had is the it. blood? Well, n- no. So it's not like when you you guys brought back the Ibex yeah. in 2000. We didn't first... bring it back. No, it wasn't the No, no. <laughs> when I said out. you, I sort of meant Don't do that. You... Don't do that. <laughs> I sort of meant you guys as in all scientists. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, Diptra. You know, you yeah, guys are a... I'm not doing anything like that. <laughs> well, another Churchill relic is uh, went to auction in 2015, and that was the stub of one of his cigars that he had smoked while in hospital, in his hospital mm-hmm. bed. Uh, times have changed. Um, but <laughs> he, uh, you, can, you can get a lot of that out there. Cigars of Churchill's, little stubs. Mm. Um, um, there's plenty of them around. They keep going on auction. And the reason is, is that he never used to finish a cigar. He used to only smoke them halfway through. And there's a lot of accounts of Churchill being very acutely aware of the fact that the cigar was his trademark look. So there's accounts of him as they're pulling up to places, him saying, stop the car, and he'd light up a cigar and say, branding, it's all about branding. He wouldn't say that exact <laughs> Did he say word. branding, it's <laughs> all about branding? <laughs> that is, in 50 years, that's going to be a Churchill misquote, and it's going to be your fault. Branding, yeah. it's all about branding. It was Something like that. I can't remember. He does seem very corporate, though. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if he's worrying about his how he speaks and his teeth. Yeah. And, well, and of and course, the, the thing with his uh, whiskey drinking, where he knew that whiskey was part of his image, and he massively yeah. watered down his whiskey all the time because he didn't want to be drunk. But that, I think I think that's fair enough. I think that's I think it's good that he wasn't absolutely smashed all the way through the war. Obviously, that's fine. But, yeah, but he, he didn't, didn't have to he cultivate have to the whiskey the, image. Yeah, oh, it's all very, as, he once, as I believe he once said, branding. <laughs> it's all about branding. <laughs> Just on his cigars, his yeah. mum hated the fact that he smoked cigars, and she said to him when he started. She said to him when he was fifteen, "If you knew how foolish and silly you looked doing it, you would give up immediately." And I just, I love the idea because parents always say that when you start smoking and you're fifteen, they're like, "You look like an idiot." I know you think you look cool, <laughs> and Churchill's mum saying to him, "You look like a damned fool, Churchill." Mm. And she actually paid him to give up smoking, so he did give up for six months. Really? Like, I think you've like done a really bad public health message there. <laughs> <laughs> you basically said, look, he turned out really well. Yeah. Take, up and, um, take up smoking. One day you too could yeah. defeat fascism. <laughs> but, yeah, <I> mean. <laughs> what you said, Dan, about how um, he thought the speeches were a hugely important part of um, the, the yes. war effort and, yeah. and morale and this, this kind of stuff. I was reading about the reaction to one of his most famous ever speeches, the Dunkirk one. So just after the British army had um, been kicked out of France by the Nazis, the speech, We Shall Fight on the Beaches and in all the other locations uh, as the first first draft had it brackets fill in here branding anyway 
supposedly that reaction didn't the, the speech did not get a great reaction so when he read it out in the House of Commons his wife uh, Clementine she told a friend that and I'm quoting here a great section of the Tory party were not behind Winston and had received his speech even in sullen silence Ooh. so lots of the reactions were not actually as good as we think they were at the time and it was more when the tide of the war turned a bit for example in about 1942 that They've really got a great reaction then. Okay. Is it is it true that he basically just used Anglo-Saxon words in that speech? Ooh, don't know. Because he really? he really went like patriotic, patriotic, uh, patriotic. So he tried to use any other words. So it is all very solid old English words. That is don't so fascinating. Is. Yeah, yeah. Even though even though they're kind of Germanic in origin. Really, he should have been using some nice romance languages like the French. <laughs> that wasn't going so well. <laughs> so the, the original speech when Churchill made it wasn't broadcast because the House of Commons wasn't wired for sound. And on the radio that evening, they said Churchill said these things in the House of Commons today and then quoted him. Mm-hmm. So where did we get the recording, sorry, of the Beecher's script if it wasn't recorded in the House of Commons at the time? Churchill re-recorded them later on. No way. And in fact, he recorded them after the war was over. He's so corporate. That is yeah. so corporate. He is aware. He's slick, isn't he? That'd be like Obama getting into a recording booth and doing his Yes We Can speech You're absolutely again. absolutely right. Yeah, well, so it was in 1949 that he recorded these. And these were the ones that were sold by EMI uh, and I think possibly Decca too. Uh, and they, was, they, were, they were sold in the States as well. This later. is honestly so disappointing. I reckon I've definitely listened to those at some point with a, after a bottle of wine and just got really emotional and thought, God, <laughs> it's like I'm right there. And that's just him sitting in 19. 19- 49 in a little white business room that is so depressing it's the experience of hearing them Mm. is very emotive and i think when you hear those words you know we can all remember him saying how he says we will fight them on the beaches well he actually says we will fight on the beaches so there we go (laughs) i mean in doing it like later on as he did he could probably add more emphasis because he knew how it turned out. Yeah. yeah. So he can like, uh, yeah. really go, hey, look at this bit. Yeah. Yeah. A, and everyone's I've, like, wow, you're amazing. I've got a funny feeling, guys. Yes. So we're we're going to be successful in that bit. <laughs> okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is Chazinski. Yeah, my fact this week is that art galleries wedge marbles between paintings and the wall so that if anyone tries to steal the painting, the marbles fall on the floor and make a clattering noise. (laughs) And that's just a classic art gallery anti-theft device. Um, (laughs) Is that that a classic? It is a classic, yes. I read this in Salon and it was in an article called How to Foil an Art Heist and the person who wrote it is someone who advises museums on this kind of thing and galleries and he said he can't name the museums who do this because they don't want to give away their really advanced tactics. But yeah, apparently this is quite common, especially if there are galleries that have budget constraints. You just shove some marbles, wedge them between the painting and the wall and as you can imagine, if a thief tries to lift the painting off the wall and they go clattering to the ground, the thief might scarper. Yeah, or trip so as they're it, going away. Or trip, yeah. yeah. Outside my flat, when they put the garden gates, and they were like, "Have you have this extra bit on top of the garden gates, mm-hmm. which is really flimsy? So if someone tries to climb over, that smashes." Mm-hmm. Oh, oh wow! And uh, it's, it's yeah. So a lot of people, it's like, oh, it's the Home Alone method of defending yeah. your gallery, yeah. isn't it? Do, it really do galleries is. also recommend? Installing tarantulas around <laughs> the place yes. and little cardboard cutouts of people to make yeah. it look like the <laughs> gallery is the always open. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They're just dancing all the time in the window. So you wouldn't have tarantulas. That would be like the worst. They can only just flick hairs. You want to really go for something else than the tarantula. What would you go for? Is I'd it? go for a uh, Deathstalker scorpion. Deathstalker scorpion. Or a okay. scolopendra, like the big centipedes. 
Here you go, tips for... I'd just say, they're, they're pretty more aggressive. <laughs> I'd love if you were in charge of security somewhere. It's so good. I'd have flesh-eating spiders, but they go away and slowly these necrotic wounds carried on eating them. Oh my... We have um, lots of problems because, obviously, in the old days, natural history collectors were very obsessive. Obviously, we're very normal nowadays. Mm-hmm. A lot of people would come in with various different apparel to actually go through the collections and pick out specimens they hadn't got in their own collections. So and this is an era of top hats and things like that. Mm-hmm. So underneath, in there, they would have like foam bases in the top, in the inside of their top hat. So they'd go into the collection, stick a load of butterflies in it, put that hat back on. Wow. And walk out. No way. Yeah. And these were collectors who just wanted to steal from the NHS yeah, because they um, wanted the stuff for themselves. There's there's some very famous cases, and there's a lot of people. Who, I mean, that's wrong, but what they did, a lot of them was even worse. They took the data off the specimens. Now, to me, that's like you might as well. It's like. Oh, and then it's ruined. It's ruined for life. There's nothing yeah. we can do. You don't know it. when it was collected or where. It is just a dead so, finch. You know what? Steal, and hopefully we'll get it back one day because some child in the family, like three generations on, would donate it to us. Ah. Uh, but if you take off the data, that's it. It's dead. It's double dead. Why double would you take dead. off the double dead to us? There's nothing we can do with it. Why would they? So they sort of take, they leave the thing behind, but they just take the yeah, description of what it is. Yeah, you had a very famous person. Mine's, mine at Hagen. He, he did a very, he did that all the time. And um, he, he also put on different data. And it was like, ah. Oh, well, just to mess with you. Was he, yeah. No, was he trying to build up his own collection? Or yeah. was he trying to pr- sort of say, I've collected all these things? Uh, he was he trying was... to make himself to be the most amazing like mm. collector at the time. And it was like, ah. <gasps> Yes, and that's why we're very careful about security. And top hats no longer allowed. No longer allowed, no. (laughs) Um, I I think I found the most prolific uh, art destroyer who was not a thief of art. Uh Uh, It's a a woman called Mrs. Breitweiser who was the mother of a French art thief uh, and destroyed the art that her son had stolen when he asked her to, to destroy evidence. uh, And I've got written down here that she destroyed a billion pounds worth of the oh. art that he'd stolen. Very prolific art thief. Why didn't he destroy it? Uh, you can't I get your mum to do your dirty work I know, like but this that. is not he's not the only one. So there was a, a thief called Radu Dogaru who asked his mum to burn all the artworks he'd stolen so that the police wouldn't find them. And she did. She put them in the stove and she burned them all up and then forensics experts had to go through all the ashes in the bottom of her stove and pick out tiny, tiny bits of, say, Picasso's signature. Whoa. Like tiny, you know, fractions of a millimetre long. Yeah. Just so they could measure them and say... That is the kind of paint that would have been used in this Monet or whatever. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. These so, for sad little boys living in their mum's <laughs> attic, doing their crime and yeah. then bringing it home to their mummy to sort it, out. It is bizarre. There have been two separate cases of, you know, getting your mum to destroy the art you stole. <laughs> that is weird. Just, Just been reading. Gonna we be have a, a depot which is, exists somewhere in the UK and um, a cat broke in and it took offence to one of the specimens and it just kept knocking it off and so they'd come in every morning and it was like put it back up could never find this cat and it was only like CCTV because they were like this is really weird why is this one specimen always off always off I, you, you brag about the great security you've got but there's a cat that keeps repeatedly cat breaking burglars. in and you can't well, we know that it. cats are naturally very good at that they are good at that yeah. I've got one last thing, which is this is a really cool example of security in a museum um, that uh, <laughs> this is at the Museum of English Rural Life. Mm-hmm. And it's a bit of security they didn't realize they had. Uh, they have within their collection on display a 150 year old mousetrap. And they came in one morning and sitting inside the mousetrap was a mouse. 
caught in present day, as in in the last few years. Um, oh, wow. And so what it was is while they were doing renovations, some mice managed to get into the museum, had managed to get through the little casing <laughs> and got caught by a mousetrap that had been set and built in 1861. That is so cool. Yeah, by Colin Pullinger and Sons uh, of Silsey, West Sussex. And on the side of the box, it boasts perpetual mousetrap will last a lifetime. Oh. <gasps> That's longer great. than. Someone needs to write in longer than yeah. for that. Yeah. That's super cool. That's pretty cool. One of the silliest things we've ever had stolen from the museum is um, coprolite is done from a dinosaur. Oh, yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah, the poo set. There's market for that. I wonder what he wants to do with it. Oh, it's just a cool... It's the coolest coprolite out, surely. Yeah, Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, I mean, you can get any sort of... There's a museum of poo in the Isle of Wight. Did you know that? No. Yeah, they, they, they freeze, they liquid nitrogen, they freeze these poos in spheres... Just not normal open, human poos. <laughs> Are they accepting donations? Or? Well, apparently, there's a there's a waiting list. They're, they're trying to get different animal poo and whatever. We've been in contact. So it's not fossilized ancient poo. It's no, just it's a dog poo you pick up on the street. And but no, no. I mean, they're not. They're quite selective. Okay. They don't yeah, take like, any old shit. Yeah. <laughs> it's got to be pedigree. Pedigree poo. God, I don't want to know what the gift shop looks like. <laughs> is it? That's not open to the public, though, is yeah. it? Yeah. What? Great. Isle of Wight, visit. Here we come. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it is time for a final fact of the show, and that is Andy. My fact is that prisoners in Siberia used to eat prehistoric animals they found frozen in the ice. Is that really true? What? So what kind of animals? Mammoths? All kinds of animals. Really? Mammoths. Dinosaurs. Dinosaurs. Who says? Well, okay, according to Alexander Solzhenitsyn... Okay, he's reliable. He's very reliable. Uh, he was a prisoner uh, in, in Siberia for a very long time, a very famous Russian author, and he wrote a book called The Gulag Archipelago, the idea of this sort of huge chain of islands of gulags spread across Siberia. Siberia is absolutely enormous, and it's where Russia traditionally sent all of its dissidents and, you know, any troublemakers. And it's on the first page of his book. He writes about uh, some prisoners handing over uh, some prehistoric squirrels they found, ground squirrels, uh, to the camp geologist of the camp they were in. But he also said that on other occasions, prisoners had just devoured these things on the spot because they were so hungry. Other people have disputed it. They've said there wouldn't be much left of a ground squirrel, even if it had been frozen. It would have, uh, you know, uh, petrified, gone very hard. Mm. So he claims it. Other people have said, is this possible? They get hard like wood. Maybe they were just fish that had been stuck in a frozen river. But it's possible, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. So there have been lots of reports for hundreds of years of people eating prehistoric animals, haven't there? (laughs) Which I think people say are mostly apocryphal and it's often mammoths. Well, they did, when the baby mammoth... So when they, and they defrosted and all the blood started leaking out, there was, and I don't know if they actually took from that one, but they have eaten bits of mammoth. Was that the one that was found quite a couple of years yeah. ago? Yeah. Who, who were they? That the, the researchers. Oh. Yeah, it was like a big thing. And, that's um, that's I mean, a pretty, is that a risky thing to do? I mean... If, if, the, if the animal is frozen and it's kept constantly below zero degrees, yeah. it's fine, which doesn't happen basically in the environment so yeah. that's but if it goes up and down in temperatures and it defrosts and then refreezes yeah that's when you're getting all the mold and the bacteria mm. being actually frozen into the specimen so that's when you can get all sorts of craziness but if you heat it in the microwave for a minute that should yeah. be fine because <laughs> yes. the average mammoth is gonna fit in a microwave yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
There was was it Alexei Tikhonov has tried mammoth. I think he might have been one of the zoologists on that expedition. Well, anyway, he said he's tasted mammoth and it was awful. It tasted like meat left too long in a freezer. Mm. I mean, which yeah. what are you expecting? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just on things found in ice. I read a really cool story that in 2010, researchers were looking in Shackleton's base camp and they found underneath the floorboards a crate of old whiskey. And they brought it up and it was frozen, but when they were defrosting it and they were swirling around the bottles, they could hear liquid inside, so the whiskey was still usable. Now, obviously, they were never going to drink it, but the particular whiskey that was there was from a company called McKinley, and they'd lost the recipe since. So basically, we had the recipe again of a lost whiskey. So what they did was they flew it over to Scotland, and there's a new company called Wyatt and McKay who bought McKinley, and they put syringes through the cork, and they managed to get the whiskey out and they managed to replicate the recipe of what that long lost whiskey Mm. uh, recipe was and they made 50,000 bottles so they (laughs) sold it as a sort of limited edition $157 American per bottle it's not unlimited is it you know when you get something limited edition you think god it's only me and 10 other people I guess everything is a limited edition (laughs) isn't it because no one's ever made an infinite number of anything (laughs) yes (laughs) but so then they uh, they sent the bottles back to uh, the base so it's still Mm. there as part of what was wow. abandoned and left. What did they call it? Um, ooh, I don't know. I think they called it just what it was. Um, okay, they didn't call what, it Shackleton. No, they should have. The American audience would have loved that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so just on these uh, these ancient animals that are being found in the permafrost and things like this. Mm. Yeah. Um, so one really useful thing is uh, squirrels because they, uh, they made nests and they made nests of all the local uh, flora. And so it's like a, it's like a, a, a densely packed nest full of the kind of species that you would have had growing uh-huh. in the ice age it's a frozen herbarium exactly. yeah so you've yeah. got all these different species just gathered very conveniently in one place for the scientists to that's look into really and examine yeah. Yeah. yeah that's great and this is the amazing thing uh, a few years ago in 2012 scientists grew the most ancient living organism multicellular on the planet it's a plant little plant called uh, silene stenophylla and it was brought back to life by these seeds that oh, the squirrels yeah. be- that the squirrels put in their nest, the seeds were thirty one and a half thousand years old, Whoa. and we grew them they still into work. a plant, and they still work. And now we have lots of these things. And it's quite beautiful, isn't it? It's a sort of a, is that that really delicate looking white flower? I it's think so. Yeah, with a yeah. white flower on top. Yeah, it's really lovely. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, that's incredible. Can I ask a quick question about? So, has the Natural History Museum got a woolly mammoth that's ever been um, sort of thawed out of the ice? We, I don't believe we have any. And the one that came to us to visit and everyone got to see went back again. Okay. So right. it's like, yeah, you can look. But yeah. so really, apparently 1% only of the woolly mammoths that get dug out of the permafrost or that thaw out of the permafrost ends up in, end up in scientific hands. Interestingly, really? um, elephant tusks are CITES. Mammoth tusks aren't. So, so then and what, and what that, they're not sorry. protected right. in terms of like um, oh. under the, yes. Really? So you're not allowed because they're not considered well, I mean, rare is, enough. Is, I mean, you can't really protect the mammoths you, yeah, anymore, exactly. can you? Yeah. But you can stop the tusks from getting into the wrong hands, right? You could mm-hmm. say this yep. is protected as in a museum has to have. Them. But it, yeah, but we haven't got legislation for that. Really? Mm. On other old foods that have been eaten, there's bog butter. Bog butter is a way that people used to store butter, and they would put it in bogs. This is especially in Scotland and Ireland, and it would be preserved. And I think recently we found 300 packs of bog butter. So there was a big uncovering in a swamp in Ireland and it was up to 1,400 
100 years old and this woman called Helen Lucy Burke who I think is a journalist went to the museum where all this bog butter was on display 1400 years old and it was being suspended on a plinth and it's yeah it's like cheesy lardy butter and she just grabbed a bit of it and ate it which is quite cool and she said it wasn't disgusting it wasn't very nice it was cheesy ripe and athlete's footy I mean but that's that sentence would be disgusting enough if you had a friend who just grabbed a bunch of butter and started eating it. <laughs> so, like, what did she have it on anything? Did she have toast with her? Just or? on its own. I think it was quite solidified by that point, maybe. Perhaps. Oh, right, like a biscuit. I quite yeah. like butter just by itself. Yeah, but you wouldn't just stick your hands out. I, I really? Just, yeah. You're really? kidding. I, I just, it's one of those things. <laughs> like a cat. <laughs> I, see, I, I don't like chocolate, I like butter. Oh, ah. really? Which is healthier, just eating chocolate or just eating butter? Both are bad. Both are. <laughs> Yeah. Well, they're good in small amounts. It's not like I have like a pack of butter. Who would die first? You only allowed to eat butter, or me only allowed to eat chocolate? Well, at this rate, chocolate's dying out, so you would have the worst sauce. Wait, what? Chocolate's dying out? Yeah, uh, the, the problem isn't there. There is because the pollinator's dying out, and you know what the pollinator is? It's a fly. Oh. Is it one specific it? fly then? Uh, well, we think there's about 14 species. We don't know. Well, can't you bring them back? Isn't this what you do? No, it's you're creating a habitat problem for them. I don't blame me. I'm just saying it's you people with your mass demand of chocolate. <laughs> You've gone out there and you're oh. like, okay, let's say our monocultures. The adults have come along and they're like, oh, don't like this. Oh, so they're genuinely like, this is limited stock. Like mm, this is actual grab your chocolate limited now, stock. Edition, stick yeah. it in a bog and then you'll be fine. Okay. Wow. The nearest very By the way, are mosquitoes flies? Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I thought there might be something else. Is a I daddy long legs a fly? Ah, what are you calling a daddy long legs? Oh, there are two, aren't there? No, I mean, there's three now. They've added a third one just for fun. Oh, no. So, you know, no, this is why you shouldn't use common names or anything. So you've got the daddy long legs, the flying thing, which is a crane fly, true fly. That's the one. The second one is a pillions, which are harvestmen. And the third type is the daddy long leg spider. Which is the one that it's used to be called a cellar spider. It's the one that hangs around in your living room. Oh, it's very and then when, spindly. When you, yeah. Okay, and that can't fly either. No, but that's a spider, so that is venomous. Are there any spiders that can fly? Nope. <laughs> Unless they're using phoretic behaviour. Oh, I'm kind of lying. Because balloon spiders, they balloon, so they exist. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So they can get up into really high up. Wait, hang on. How do they, what, they float up? Like no, they release silk. They it's the silk. silk. Do you remember? Oh, yeah. They're that's They're reverse cheating. parachuters. Yeah. They go That's like saying we can up. fly, isn't it? That's like saying we can fly because we climb up, we rope climb. Or built. It? Uh, what? Yeah, because no, they're no. using threads. No, they're no, no, it's, if it's I, just I, literally released into the wind. Yeah. And, and because it's so thin and they're so small, the viscosity of the air is such that oh, they can yeah. go woof. And it's them. If I, it, th- yeah. The only equivalent is if I let out my sperm whale-sized sperm and that caught the wind. And dragged me to the end before Usain Bolt got there. <laughs> you rode on it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Extraordinary scenes at today's Olympics. <laughs> okay, that's it. That's all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland. Andy? At Andrew Hunter M. Uh, Erica? Flygirl MHM. And Chazinski. Uh, you can email podcast at qi.com. Yep, or you can go to our group account, QI Podcast, or go to our website, no such thing as a fish.com. It's got all of our previous episodes. And do get Erica's book. It's called The Secret Life of Flies. It's available. You can get it on Amazon. It's going to be in bookshops. Why not go to the Natural History Museum, buy it from the shop there, track down Erica, get her to sign it, and have a chat? <laughs> no, track I, her down. I said I'd only sign for wine. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> there we go. We'll be back again next week with another episode. We'll see you then. Goodbye. Bye.